So I just want to mention that. I'm riding it. We are in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 7, actually, and I want to frame it like this. Earlier this week, I, I'm here uh, in our church building. I'm studying. I come out to our gathering place. We have a receptionist. We have a few people that serve that way, volunteers from our church family. One of them, her name is Ava. I walk in there, and she has her Bible open and a commentary of the book of Ecclesiastes. My pastor's heart went pitter-patter. Uh, and I just thought it was the most beautiful thing. And it brought up, it actually brings up a point. Our approach to this, this is an 11-week study. Our approach to this book in the Hebrew scriptures, wisdom literature, poetry, in the Old Testament, is not to go verse by verse. The book is very repetitive in that way. Um, what we're doing as we go through this is to give an overview capturing overarching themes and doing selective deep dives. We, in other words, we want to leave a lot of meat on the bones for you to study on your own in your everyday life. That's why we're starting at chapter seven and I'm not finishing chapter six, ha ha. Um, but I wanna encourage you to go back. In fact, chapter seven, which is supposed to do the whole chapter day, it, it, there's so much. I'm just gonna get through 12 verses maybe today. But I wanna encourage you that you, this would be more than a time that we're just inspired for a little bit, but that we would actually take it into heart. Maybe write some things down on your phone or on a piece of paper, take, bring it into your week. And let's study this on our own. If you want to, uh, just to, to remind you, we gave out like whole syllabus of this uh, study we're going through on paper, but it's also on our website. And there's uh, on the website, or on a QR code in the, on the paper that was, uh, that was handed out, study guide, uh, more material that gives you some commentaries, some things, some study tools, some videos that you can watch to learn more about this. Okay, are you ready? Let's do this together. All right, in our teaching team meeting this week, we read through all of chapter seven, and then when we got done, somebody took a deep breath and said, what the Kohelet <laughs> happening here? And so... That is a coined phrase now. Uh, in light of that, uh, actually in, in chapter six, verse 11, it says this, you're gonna like this. The, the, the more words, the less the meaning. How does that profit anyone? And that's why we're only doing 12 verses. Okay, um, I'm gonna stop. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter seven, one through 12. Let's read through these 12 verses and then we'll start unpacking and going through it. It says this, a good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone, and the living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than the beginning and, the, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, 
Why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. What the Kohelet is going on here? Uh, This is actually a beautiful passage that we're gonna be in today. Um, Let me just remind you real quick. So here, what's happening is... I use the word Kohelet, it's a character in, in this uh, teaching, and it's a character in the story that may or may not be the author, we don't know, but there's a, the, the word is teacher, or in some translations, preacher, who's talking to us in this story, or in, the, in, in this text, and bringing us through this wisdom, and here he just changes gears and goes from one form of sharing wisdom to like... Uh, more of a Proverbs style, a Maxim style, like this is better than that style of sharing wisdom. So it completely, he kind of changes how he's approaching wisdom here. Now here's how I picture it because my imagination is weird. So we've talked about the Kohelet in all sorts of ways. He's like this professor in, in a sense that isn't just giving us truth, spoon feeding us truth, but helping us to ask better questions about life, uh, who is continually drawing us out and asking questions and even at times changing worldviews. At one time we think, man, is this a person like a godless secularist? And then at one point, uh, which we know is the true view of the Kohelet or the teacher, the Kohelet's the Hebrew word, that, that he's a God-fearing man, but he, he jumps back and forth and it can be kind of confusing trying to draw us out, trying to help us discover truth on our own. And, and then we've also looked at this as like a, a divine garbage collector, somebody who is asking these tough existential questions of life so that we can go into the corners of our heart, just like we would in spring cleaning and go to the the areas that we've neglected to actually get rid of the stuff that doesn't matter. And then last week, I shared a little bit about this person being kind of like an annoying friend who just tells you, an annoying friend, but a good friend who just tells you the truth like all the time. And you're like, just stop for a second. That's a lot of truth. Uh, and then today, here's how I pictured it. Because this man has a, isn't necessarily Solomon, but has a Solomon-like persona. And what that means is Solomon was the wisest, the wealthiest. At that time, just the, I mean, just the pinnacle of success. Like None of us can even scratch the surface at how much Solomon had at his disposal when it, become, when it comes to worldly success and pleasure. Absolutely everything. And this is a person, in a sense, towards the end of their life, unpacking wisdom for us based on this grand experiment of trying to find meaning in all of the things of life, in, in pleasure, in work, in everything else, in wealth, in everything else. And so I pictured it like this. This is an old, like, like Grandpa Sage. And he sits down. And he, uh, with you, and you get comfortable, and he pours you, anybody have coffee? Cheers. Pours you a black cup of coffee. He makes fun of you if you put sugar or cream in it. <laughs> Gotta bring your own pumpkin spice. <laughs> um, and he begins to share, like, just go after some things. This is better than that, and share with you and unpack wisdom. 
Um, and he shares some pretty odd things here as he sits down with you. And we're gonna start at the first half of verse one. And here's what it says. He says, you picture it? A good name is better than fine perfume. And using this metaphorical poetry language, and we're just gonna kind of go through it and unpack it together. And hopefully as you study it during the week, more, there's so much more to this than that we're able to get at today. But there is a sense that there, when he says a good name is better than fine perfume, a name is a reputation that we carry. Perfume is something we put on the outside that eventually evaporates and fades away. And in a sense, he's pointing us inward. There are things you can do to make yourself look attractive on the outside. The clothes you wear, the success you have, uh, the perfume you wear, the makeup you put on, um, whatever it is, the car you drive, there are things you can do. The smile that you have on your face, you know, and sometimes you're just faking it, you know. There's things you can do to make yourself look attractive on the outside. But what he's saying here is the old sage sits across from you after experiencing so much life and all this world has to offer, and he says, who cares how good you smell on the outside if you're not honorable on the inside? And I've used this illustration for different things before, but it kind of fits here. It's the difference between a, a Christmas tree and a fruit tree. What I mean by that is this. It's all, guys, Christmas is coming. Sorry. Um, anyone can put ornaments on a dead tree to make it look pretty but only an alive and healthy tree on the inside can go grow fruit that actually nourishes the world around us. Uh, this, even in the first half of this verse, he's not pulling any punches. This guy doesn't care what you think, and so it's uncomfortable. It's okay to yell shut up if you want. I'm just kidding, don't. Um, uh, or Dave will tackle you, right, Dave? Um, okay, so we see the old sage here beginning to point our attention inward. And in case you're not going there, he leans in even further. The second half of verse one, he says, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. Okay, the old sage says this, for the wise, you know what's better than being born? Dying. <laughs> okay, um, in, in he is, he's saying, I'm going to put it in simple terms uh, as I can begin to understand what he's saying here because it's confusing. He's not saying that it's bad to be born. He's not saying that's a bad day. But what he is saying is there is more to learn at the end of your life than at the beginning of your life. And in Psalms 90 verse 12, it says this, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And here's what we don't want to do because it feels depressing. We don't want to number our days and we don't want to check the box every time a day goes by and watch it like, like sand going through an hourglass, watching our days come to an end. We don't want to do that. But he's saying that's actually really important to do from time to time is to actually number our days. It, it, it creates a, it, it, that we may gain wisdom in our heart. Now, let me put it like this. Numbering our days and asking the big questions in life, it does not come natural. I know this is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me too. It doesn't come natural for us. Um, and here's an example of what I mean. If I were to ask you after the church gathering's done, hey, would you meet me across town? 
Some of you, because we're like friends, you'll go, sure, I'll meet you across town. Most of you would go, why? Why would I meet you across town? I mean, it's gonna take a little bit of time to get there, a little bit of time to get back. What are we gonna do when we're there? I just wanna know, because it might be an hour, two hours. It's a Sunday afternoon. I wanna, maybe you wanna watch a football game. You want to justify an hour spent with me on the other side of town. Just tell me why we're going to the other side of town. Here's what's interesting. And we want that when it comes to our time, when it comes to our life, we wanna justify why we do the things that we do, why we put our time where we put our time, and that's fine, that's normal. It's called being a human being. Raise your hand if you're a human. Thank you. Yeah, you're with me. And, but here's what's fascinating. Yet if I asked most people, what is the reason for your whole life? What's fascinating, and, and maybe for some, an answer would bubble up, but you, but, Many of us would like maybe stumble and think from, and maybe even can't give a solid answer. Many humans can't give a solid answer to that in a general sense. I asked myself that question, yes, and I'm gonna point to Jesus and some of those things, but it takes a, wait, wait, I get, and it's fascinating to me, in other words, that most people need to justify an hour, but have a hard time articulating and justifying their existence. And it's just fascinating. It, it comes natural in a day-to-day basis with our schedule to justify why we do what we do. It doesn't come natural to ask the bigger questions. Why am I here? Why am I working the way I work? Why am I giving? Why, what is the point of all of this? What's the point of all the stuff I accumulated? And so he's getting us to ask the deeper question. Um, why? There's a, an old thinker, a famous Russian thinker and writer. His name is Leo Tolstoy. Anybody heard of Tolstoy? Many of you have. He was at the height of his success and fame. He was about 50 years old. He hits a crisis point, about 50 years old. And he wrote these words. He says, it is possible to live only as long as life intoxicates us. But once we are sober, we cannot help seeing that it is all a delusion, a stupid delusion. Thank you, Leo. Um, What does it mean to be intoxicated by life? As I began to think about that question, what does it mean to be distracted or intoxicated by life? It is the busyness of our daily life. It is the distractions that keep our attention. There's, whole, there's a whole economy that's based on just our attention, just distracting us. Like we got our, many of us got our cell phones with us. Our cell phones were created just to take our attention, uh, to hold our attention, and, and it monetizes our attention. Uh, but not just that, just this, I mean, there were no cell phones back then in the 1800s when this guy lived. Like, it just is the everyday stuff of life, the chores, the, the work that we do, the, the, the things that fill our brains. And some of our brains are really full. I, when I have a full brain, I, can't, I can sleep for a little while. And then I wake up and I just wanna get back to sleep. Anybody else? Yeah, and, um, and so uh, those things that fill our mind. And, and I, as I began to think, to think about these big questions and how easy it is to ignore them in our everyday life. I I thought like back then for Leo Tolstoy, like 
there was a thing called boredom. But today, you remember when you used to have to just wait in line? Anybody remember that? Like, you used to just have to wait. And when you were in line, you had to just stare around. You didn't have a phone or something to look at. And I think this is really fascinating that for us, there's a different layer to this. There used to be like these margins, these, these places where we had to just stop and look around or think. And we, you know, we don't want to be bored. We want to get through that. We want to get through the line to get where we're going. But now we literally have distractions built into our devices. We don't, and it's very normal that even the cracks of life are filled with the ability to escape. And so our lives are filled with distractions. Um, and even the little time that we had to have free brain space, these portals to be creative, to, to, to think, to wonder, to meet a stranger. Now even those gaps are closed quite a bit. And the question is this, what does it take to break us out of these seemingly impenetrable uh, illusions or distractions called life? This intoxication that Leo Tolstoy talks about or the Kohelet talks about. And it's verse two through four. This is what he says. And this is difficult. I just want to name that. But he says this, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Now, I cheated real quick. Um, I actually... Pre-drew some words. Um, but here's what's interesting. That word, when it says, um, and let me, let me get it right. When he says here, it is better. Everybody say better. That word better, as we read it here, is actually the word tov. All right? Now, you might have heard the word tov. The word tov, and when God made creation, and he said it was good, it's actually the word tov. And so... When you hear the word better here, it actually means good or tov. And, but here's what I want to point out real quick. What the Kohelet is not saying, that feasting, laughter, and pleasure are bad. Um, that's not actually what's happening here. On, at face value, it looks like that's what's happening here. Uh, that he's saying, like, these things are bad. Feasting's bad. I like to feast. Um, anybody like to laugh? Laughter's not bad. Pleasure in and of itself is not bad. I'm not gonna go into, um, try to dissect that too much. What he is saying here as he poses one against another is he's saying this, mourning, frustration, and a sad face. He's saying it is better or it is more tov, more good. Now here's what's interesting about this. It's fascinating. This is a fascinating list. And here's why. When he lays this out, um, these are the things that we're trying to avoid. These are the things we want. How many of the prayers we pray are to move from these places? Like, I don't, I don't want to have a sad countenance. I, mourning is really hard. And that, to me, feels like a, a whole nother difficult category that's really important. Frustration, the fact that that word's in there, is just annoying. 
Does anybody actually want to be frustrated? There's so many frustrating things in life. And he's saying those things, in a sense, are more told. Why is he bringing this up to the surface? It, it doesn't seem to make sense. And the question that comes to my mind is this. Why doesn't God pull the ripcord and get us out of the suffering, the frustration, the mourning, the sad face, which is a metaphor for deeper things going on when we want it to? Like, why, why can't I just pray and God take me out of these difficult situations? Why? And we begin to see the hints of this question being answered here. Here's one thing we know about God. John 8, 31 through 32. You can look it up yourself, um, but if you write that reference down, you'll see God's commitment to us is truth and freedom. God wants us to be a people of truth and to live free lives. In the, in the, and, and so what does it take to break us out of this seemingly impenetrable illusion held together by busyness and distraction of everyday life. This, uh, in chapter six, we talked about it. This, it's like this internal hell that we're trying to feed ourselves with the, with the things in this world and, and we're never satisfied. We're accumulating and we just want more. There's always a longing that we're trying to fill in this world. And it's like torture. It's like internal torture that we've grown numb to or learned to live with, that we can't satisfy the thing inside of us that deeply wants to be satisfied. And it doesn't matter how much success, it doesn't matter, um, it, it, you know, we, we want to find it in a person, then a person lets us down. We, we want to find it in wealth, but uh, that never satisfies. We always want more according to scripture, and we just can't, it's a hunger we can't have satisfied. And there's this illusion that it'll eventually, it's like this mirage out there, eventually we'll reach it, and it looks like water, but we get to it and it's just more desert. It's like this internal hell, this circle we're in, this illusion that we're living in in this world. What's the meaning of all of this? And so what does it take to break us out of this impenetrable illusion held together by the busyness, the distractions of everyday life? And here's what the Kohelet says, this this old sage says, here's what, if you let it, here's what can break you out. Frustration and funerals. Um, I had a mentor when I was a teenager. I thought it was the weirdest thing uh, at first. This mentor would sometimes have prayer times or quiet times at a cemetery. How creepy is that? Um, in my late teens, I actually adopted that practice There'd be different parks I'd go to, but some parks were memorial parks. And and there was something about it. There was something about these epitaphs. There was something about these lives that were actually lived that just began to anchor my soul as a young man. One of the places, I I love being a part of weddings. They're they're so, they're actually really fun for me um, to do weddings, but I, I find that there's something really deep and sacred and weighty and beautiful about a memorial service or a funeral. Um, There is a sense that people's hearts begin to crack open and the big questions float to the surface. There is that sense. Here's what I've discovered in me after doing dozens and dozens and dozens of memorial services and funerals. Um, I found myself thinking about other people quite a bit, uh, and it's almost like callus builds up on my heart. 
God really convicted me of this, that I can enter into those spaces. And it's almost like I'm just doing the thing. I'm, I'm hosting this. I want people to be comforted. But there is this sense of, that I have in me of God calling me to feel it again. Especially if it's someone that I'm not close to. Sometimes it's hard to feel. But no, feel it again. I don't want to feel it. I want to I numb that. I want to callous that. I don't, well, it's uncomfortable to feel it. And what he's saying here is the wise person, the wise person, it's not that they don't ever experience feasting, laughter, and pleasure. That's a part of life. We see earlier in Ecclesiastes, that's a good thing. Enjoy the gifts of God. But a wise person walks into these situations in life. Um, when you're facing loss, or you're facing frustration, and you actually open up to it, and let it take you on a journey. Instead of numbing it, closing off, or just trying to get through it as fast as you can. And it's so, it feels so anti-human to do that. But he's saying it's actually a path of wisdom here to be able to, to, be able to embrace that. The co- and, and here's what the Kohelet isn't doing. The Kohelet here is not the teacher, the old sage, this cup of coffee. He's not saying, wake up! He's not saying wake up. Here's what he's doing. He's actually showing us the circumstances or environments in life that provide us the greatest opportunity with waking up from the illusion of finding meaning in this life alone without God. So what happens and and when we break free from that illusion even for a moment, um, and I pictured this like, I'm asking the big questions. I break free from the illusion. I'm asking the big questions. We just want to run like, and go back to our busy lives and, and distract ourselves. And Tolstoy, again, I'm coming back to him today. I kind of was on a Tolstoy kick. He said, when he, was at, when he asked the question, he's, and he actually talks about, I can't believe I didn't ask this earlier in life. He's 50 years old. What will come of my entire life? And, and he said, that question alone brought him, or he said, it brought me to the edge of the abyss. What will come of my life? Eventually, it's all going to be forgotten. I'm this famous author now. I'm this famous thinker, but eventually I'll be forgotten in this idea. And a lot of the great thinkers throughout history get to that point when you read them, like where it's like they get to the edge of what he calls the abyss. In other words, for the average person, breaking free from the illusion and asking the real questions about life, bring us to the end of ourselves. And if we can break free from the preoccupation of building a happy life um, enough, then we can open up to the really real that God wants to invite us into, um, the kind of life that has a joy that is deeper, almost like a baseline of our life underneath the foundation of all the circumstances, no matter how frustrating they can be. And, and like Dallas Willard said, I've quoted it in this series before, it is at the end of our rope that we find our Savior. And we can actually find our Savior if we can break free, if we can break free from the illusion if we can begin to ask the big questions, to let them take us to the edge of the abyss, it is there. Uh, this thought just is etched into my mind. Um, one of the places where I've experienced some of the most freedom 
in followers of Jesus is actually in prison ministry. Uh, maybe you've been a part of that before. Uh, I know some of you here have. I'll never forget a man. This is like burned into my mind. He's a tall gentleman. I was in this worship time in a prison with this group of men, and they are just belting it out, beautifully off-key. It was terribly wonderful, and I was one of them. And, and just and I remember thinking this thought, there's more freedom in here than I taste outside of these prison walls many times. And there was this old gentleman who's in for the remainder of his life, and I had a conversation with him, and, and uh, he let me in a little bit into his life and some things that he had been through. And he said these words, with the freedom I have now, I could live in a cardboard box. I'll never forget it. Um, sometimes life grabs us and forces us to the end of ourselves. But for much of life, we can avoid getting to the end of ourselves if we can just construct our American dream just right. If we can stay just busy enough or distracted enough focusing on the external, spraying the perfume on life, we can, we can figure out how to do that. Um, and, and we'll live in that illusion, and there will come a day, and I've said it before, there will come a day as we live in that illusion where we'll, we'll look back, potentially have this moment, hopefully, where God wakes us up at least before the end, and, and, and we realize that we succeeded at a lot of things that don't matter in the end. But even at the end, just like we see with the thief on the cross, like it's not too late to turn to Jesus. Um. What does it mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be more committed to my freedom and wholeness than my comfort? Uh, I got captivated by this idea in this that um, as we look at this list, and I know I'm going all over, he, he's going all over the place, you can bear with me. Like this feels like judgment. Sometimes we look at the bad things in life and we're like, God's judging me, why, can't, why, where are you? I don't feel you anymore, God. I don't feel God's voice. I don't hear God's voice, God, why? And, and, I, and I think to myself, what if J Jesus actually is more committed to our freedom and wholeness than our comfort? Then if that's the case, then, then letting us walk through some of this difficulty, would it not be an act of mercy to let us experience, not more than we can handle, but these environments from time to time that have the greatest opportunity of breaking us out of the illusion. Okay, here's where it gets weird. The coffee's getting cold. The old sage gets up. He stretches, and he leaves the room, and you're like, what the heck is going on? And he comes back in with a hot cup of coffee for you, and everybody said... Hey, oh, come on, church family. <laughs> Work with me here. Uh, and he sits down and he goes into something else that seems like it's separated, but it's really not. Verse five says this. He says, it is better to heed the rebuke of the wise than to listen to the song of fools. And so I'll just say it like this. Um, when he says it's better to, to heed the rebuke of the wise and listen to the song of fools, um, I remember my youth pastor used to say it when I was young, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. 
In a sense here, he's saying that fools surround themselves with friends who make them feel good living in the illusion and help numb the symptoms and help them, uh, uh, even encouraging sinful behavior at times, that just like fools surround themselves like with people that help them live inside the illusion. And then he says, the wise surround themselves with friends who are honest, those who love you, uh, and are more concerned about your freedom than comfort and will actually tell the truth um, to you. And, and, and some friends are really help us find comfort in our illusion and some friends actually tell us the truth. And, and I don't like it sometimes when people tell me the truth, but I, when, when, when a friend really tells me the truth and I know that they love me, um, I know that's a gift from God. But you know it's even harder sometimes when you're in the position of needing to tell somebody the truth. Oh, can be so painful. It can be so painful, but he's saying here, better is a friend who will actually inflict a wound to heal you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And he goes on to verse six. He says, like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. And this word laughter here, it means joy, humor, or relief. And I wanna use a picture to show this. I wanna show you a picture of uh, this farm. Can you go ahead and bring that up? This is a a sinkhole. I've I've used this before. Um, This is an actual farm, and out of nowhere, the land gave way and created this big hole in the middle of nowhere. But what's fascinating about a sinkhole is a sinkhole on the surface looks like everything's okay. Um, and while it looks like everything's okay on the surface, underneath, the land underneath is, is, is being swept away and then eventually it caves in. And here's what the Kohel is saying here. When he says, like the crackling of thorns underneath the pot, so is the laughter of fools, this too is meaningless. It is hevel. It is meaningless to live in the expression of joy, humor, and relief just because things look pretty on the outside if you're actually dying on the inside. James um, Crenshaw, he points out that thistles provide quick flames, little heat, and a lot of unpleasant noise. In other words, it doesn't last long. Um, And so for the fool here, and I know we're creating categories of fool and wise, um, but we'll have a humbling point at the end where we'll center ourselves here The fool here is a person that when truth is pointed out, turns up the volume of distraction in life. And the wise embrace the opportunity to slow down and to enter in, to ponder, to reflect on what really matters. In verse seven through 10, we're almost at the end. I know this is a lot. This is like, I even call the title of this message like something like um, musings (laughs) because he is just going all over the place but it does come to a fine point. Verse seven through 10. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. In a sense, I wanna point this out here. There is a danger, as we talk about wise and fools, there's a danger, wisdom and foolishness or a wise person and a foolish, there's a danger in putting yourself in the category of I'm wise, I've arrived. In fact, if you haven't felt a little foolish reading through this, um, man, well, 
we'll pray for you later on. I, as I'm reading, here's what I know. My human experience is this. I drift between wisdom and foolishness. Anybody else? And I have this sort of drift back and forth. In the Christian world, uh, there, this is so prevalent, this, this, this pride that I, I am wise or I have this figured out. My faith is so buttoned up. My theology is so buttoned up. It is so prevalent. You can smell it. Um, pride, you may have heard it said, is a weird disease. It makes everybody sick but the person who has it. You can smell it. The person who has it can't smell it, but you can smell this kind of religious pride. This is the piece here in the passage that humbles us all. The old sage humbles us um, by humbles us uh, lest we get to the point of thinking that we have arrived. And he points out two areas of wisdom where we're most vulnerable, an outward area and an inward area. Two areas our wisdom is most vulnerable. And the first one is money. He uses money. Um, money can corrupt you, can, can poison the wisdom that you've had. Uh, and he's just naming one example. And he says, anger can also poison the wisdom that you've accumulated. It can actually turn you from a wise person into a fool. And no doubt the list goes on. My list is, goes on, it's, it's long. A few things that came to my mind for me is fear and insecurity and scarcity and isolation and regret. These things can creep in and poison my wisdom and turn me into, into a fool or, or lead me into foolishness. There was so much in the world, like money and, and on the, on the world on the outside of us, there's so much inside of us like anger that can poison even the wisest of lives. So here's what I just wanna name here. We are getting to a conclusion. How many of you are glad we're not going through all the 26 verses? Uh, uh, your wisdom is not bulletproof. No matter how far you've come, it is not bulletproof. And, uh, and in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, it says, therefore, let the one who thinks he stands watch out that he doesn't fall. So here's the last question, and this is a lot, but I wanna encourage you to do this right now, to lean into this part. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. The question is, so how does one live free from the illusion and in the wisdom of God and in the wisdom if our wisdom is so vulnerable? So how does one live free from the illusion of finding our meaning in things that will never satisfy Live and live in the wisdom of God, if the wisdom we've attained is so dang vulnerable, how do we do it? I'm gonna bring you to one of the New Testament's clearest, it, it kind of goes hand in hand with Old Testament wisdom literature, and it's in the book of James. James 1, 2 through 5. I wanna encourage you to write this down so that you can study it throughout the week along next to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And here's what it says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that they may be, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Here again, we see that our faith isn't as much about escaping frustration 
is God not creating frustration for us, but letting us walk through things and using that to actually set us free. We see it in the New Testament as well. But then here's what scripture says, and this is my salvation. And I wanna invite you into it. If you lack wisdom, ask God for it. And, and I'll just say it like this. If you lack wisdom, ask God for it. Sometimes we think that it's easy to think that we are saved, like we give our lives to Jesus, and then we're just to go out and live our Christian lives. And, and there's this thought of like, I'm, I'm living my Christian life, and there's this thought that God has sent us out. We are sent one, so God is over there, and God sent us. Matthew 28, go into all the world. God is over here, and God sent us. So we're out here, we're trying to live our life out here for God. We were saved once, and now we're out here living, living our life for God. And we can even read this verse, like if you lack wisdom, ask for it. Okay, God, give me wisdom. And you ask for it. This is a, like this one, these one-time things. But actually, Scripture talks about working our salvation out, fear and trembling, that there's this growth that happens over time. I tend to more and more, the older I get, look at being saved as not something that happened back there, but something that happens all the time right here. I'm saved over and over and over. I'm in the illusion. God's saving me out of the illusion over and over and over. And what if, what if wisdom was less this thing we grabbed and fit into our brain with the, like we, we got it, we got it all figured out, it's, and we stood on the wisdom, we stood in the wisdom of God. What if it was less that? And what if it was like what James talks about? We had a, a spiritual rhythm or a discipline of getting on our knees daily and saying, whatever wisdom I have up to this point is vulnerable to things in me that will poison it and things around me that will poison it. I have nothing to stand on but the presence of God and the word of God. Lord, will you give me wisdom? Will you give me wisdom? So that's what we're gonna do today. And I just named it like this. Our source of wisdom is the presence of God. Let's stand together, church family. Worship team, you guys can come up. I skipped 11 through 12. Ha ha. I will, I will actually mention this on verse 11 through 12. Um, yeah, I'm just gonna mention this. It says this, wisdom like an inheritance is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is like a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, wisdom preserves those who have it. Um, I, think, I think about providing for my family I have four teenagers. Um, I've, I, I regularly look at our family budget and there's an invitation here to go, you know how like money provides a shelter for you when there's wise planning? It's like an example, like wisdom more so. You can be broke and rich in wisdom, but what wisdom is actually an inheritance that you can hand down. What if we gave the wisdom of God as much attention as we give the monetary things of life. Growing in the wisdom of God.
Guys, that's why we actually study the, is, we even go through like difficult passages, this, this was difficult for me, difficult passages like this, or when we're reading through the scriptures. I remember last year we're going into the fall, and the fall's a momentous time, and we're going through the book of Mark, and it was the passage on divorce, and it's like, yay. Like, we're reading the scriptures the way we do this is why. We, we want to grow wise. We don't just want to grab a verse out and go, here, let's figure out what, what we, how we want to make it apply to our life. We want to look at the whole story, the ark of God, to live in it. This is why. Like, it's not so secret. We're encouraging people to take notes. Why? Because we, we want to bring the type of intentionality we do with the other things of our life, the perfume of our life, the things that we're trying to make good in the exterior of our life, we want to bring the same type of intentionality to growing in the wisdom of God that we would soak in the scriptures. Even if they intimidate you, you'd push past that intimidation and just start where you're at in your daily life. And this is why we pray for each other. Because we can't do it alone. And this is why we worship. We come together as a church family week in and week out and we unite our voices in song. Um, and even if we don't have a tangible reason right now, we're like, I can't see anything good. We don't worship because we have a tangible like blessing that we're, or healing or something that we've longed for that we didn't get or do. Like, that's not why we worship because we come under the mighty hand of God. God is God and we are not. And we worship even if we can't see clearly through the fog that's around us because God deserves it. So let's do this today as we end. We're just gonna do what the book of James says. We're gonna ask for wisdom. And we pray for each other because we're a church family and uh, I don't know what you're walking through, but maybe there's someone here today and you're like, I'm facing this situation or I'm stuck in the illusion of life. I feel, I feel stuck in it. Um, the Bible says to ask for wisdom. I need God's wisdom. We're just gonna take a moment and pray for you. And then we're gonna sing an old, beautiful song together. But if that's you today, could I invite you? Just, you just need God's wisdom today. Could, I just wanna invite you to take a step to an aisle. And um, you don't have to. There's no pressure when we do this. I wanna invite you to do it so that brothers and sisters can come around you and pray for you with whatever you're walking through today. You just need the wisdom of God. See you, brother. And if you see somebody, um, maybe you feel inclined to go stand with them, uh, I'd love to encourage you to do that, that we can look around the room and not be afraid to step out a little bit and um, even be a little uncomfortable just standing with somebody, just saying, hey, you're not alone. You're not alone. If we could do that, church family, if you could look around and you see somebody standing, yeah, stand with them. We see you. Yeah. We come around you today um, with whatever you're facing. We don't know what it is, but I do know that all of us hit points where we're just desperate for wisdom. And I have an imagination there's more of you here today um, and I just want to encourage you, wherever you're at, just pray, God, will you give me wisdom? Like, 
to receive it in a posture of like, I need a savior. So Lord, will you foster a humble heart in us today? Not the pride that can so easily take root in religion. Will you set us free as a church family of Church of the Open Door from a prideful religious heart? Will you give us the humility to see others better than ourselves? Will you give us the humility to run to you day in and day out and find salvation in asking you for wisdom? Lord, will you guide us? And for our brothers and sisters who are standing around the room today, um, will you begin to fill their hearts with hope right now with whatever they're walking through? Will you bring wisdom and life into the situations of everyday life? Um, Surround them, guide them, protect them. Whatever isolation they're in, will you break them out and show them they're not alone? We love you, we worship you, and we need you, Jesus, in your name. And everybody said, amen. Let's worship together, you guys.